Welcome to episode two of Cast IQ, the intelligent podcast for entrepreneurs. I'm Gary, I'm your host, and just a little bit of housekeeping before we start, really. Um, a little bit about what we do. We're a personal and business development podcast. What we don't do, however, is we don't put ads into our podcast at all, and never will we do. The reason for that is that we don't want to be focused on generating advertising revenue. We want to be focused on generating content and content that you can take away that you feel is valuable. Also, too, we'll never run a paywall. In other words, we won't charge you to access our content. That's not to say, however, that that we don't charge a fee. We do. But it's non-financial. What we do ask is that if you do get some benefit from one of our episodes, or all of them, which I'm sure you will, um, is that you tell someone else. And also, too, if you could subscribe, that would be great. But more importantly, if you could leave us a five-star review, that that would really help our cause. So without further ado, let's get on with episode two. And I'm a poet and I didn't know it. Today we've got a fantastic interview with Ian Crosswell. Ian is a Thrive consultant and works with people with mental health issues. Now, Ian himself is no stranger to mental health. In fact, he battled with his own demons until very recently. His story is phenomenal. He entered the music industry at a very early age. He also then went into banking, law and then construction as an entrepreneur. Um, He's lost everything and he's built everything back up again. This is Cast IQ and this is Ian's story. Good afternoon, Ian. Um, Absolutely pleased for you to join us um, today on the podcast. Um, I've got with me Ian Crosswell. Crosswell, actually, isn't it? Crosswell. Crosswell, yes. I think it's not just me trying to get used to this, actually, um, because funnily enough, we've always known you as Crosswell. Um, But but yes, you're a Thrive Consultant. And if if I'm correct, that is, it's not a form of therapy. It's, it's a training course on how people can manage their own mental health. Is that correct? Absolutely. It's called the Thrive Programme. That's exactly the best description you can come up with. Perfect. And obviously, you've not always been a Thrive consultant. You've, you've, you've had a journey, you know, to this point. Um, and I know from personal experience, it's something that you feel really passionate about. Um, but let's start right at the very beginning, because obviously you, you, your accent gives it away. Um, you're certainly not from the northwest as I am. Um, you're you're a London. Are you London or is it Essex? Well, it's Ilford, Essex, uh, ah. which is now a part of a London borough, but it was Ilford, Essex in my day. I see. No problem. Well, I was kind of right, I think, then on, on yeah, the accent. I'll give it to you. <laughs> so, so okay, talk about uh, life in, in Ilford then. What? Where did you come from? Where, where did you start? Right, I was born in Ilford, as I say, I was the oldest of six children, four boys, two girls. Um, Mum was a stay-at-home mum her entire life. She never, ever worked outside the home after I was born. And Dad worked in the travel trade in London all his working life. Um, So I grew up in a very ordinary suburb of London uh, in a three, to start with, three-bedroom family home which, again, remained in the family until relatively recently. Wow. My, so what was my, school like for you, Ian? School was, um, 
infant school was the school my father went to, which was within walking distance of home. Junior school was also the school my father went to, which was a mile from home, a traditional Victorian uh, junior school. We can still see buildings like it at the moment, um, usually three stories high with a playground on the roof. Um, and then I left there and passed the 11 plus and went to grammar school um, at the age of not far off 12 because I was one of the oldest in the in the class because of the way my birthday fell. Um, and I ended up in the same grammar school as my father had been head boy in many years before. Wow. How did you how did you do? What what were you, what were your results? Um obviously I passed the eleven plus, I went on and did both O and A levels. Um during the it was very academic school. Very there were still teachers that walked around in mortarboards and gowns in those days. It was a boys only school. We were all known by our surnames and um, certain teachers used other names for us um, in Latin, French or whatever they happened to be teaching you at the time. Uh, so the only bit of Latin I remember was my surname in Latin, uh, which was wow. very strange. Very. Which was irati putia, as in irate well. Oh, wow. Okay. And crosswell. <laughs> <laughs> So eventually I, um, I ended up with eight um, O-levels and three A-levels and absolutely no idea what I wanted to do with them. Wow. So I know we've, um, you've made certainly in, in our kind of my understanding and, and, and my knowledge of you um, in, in the couple of years I've known you, uh, you've made no secret of the fact that um, you've had your own brushes with mental health, etc. Um, and which has kind of led you to led you to where you are, I suppose now in terms of helping people. Um, when did you think this started? When 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 did you kind of first have like the, the first experience of, of it? Well, the first time I went to see the GP, I think I was sixteen. Okay. Um, thinking back, I think I was sixteen, and the GP said um, I needed antidepressants. Wow. Okay. I went on to antidepressants. I have no idea what they were. I can't remember. Um, but now I think back, I'm fairly convinced that the problem started soon after I joined the secondary school. Um, and although this may sound strange, it was over the Bay of Pigs incident when the Americans and Russians came very close to nuclear war. I was new into the school and anyone who's listening who's as old as me may well have come across the fact that the government issued a public information film to be shown in secondary schools on what to do in case of a nuclear attack. It was very useful advice like hide under a table, go in the cupboard under the stairs, and if I recall rightly, drink plenty of milk, which I thought was a little strange as we didn't have a cow on hand. Um, but I remember my reaction was one of sheer terror. Um, yeah, I can and a feeling of being cheated because I was in London. It occurred to me, because I'm not daft, that London was likely to be a primary target if this thing kicked off. Um, and that all that work I'd done to follow my father's footsteps to a high performing grammar school was a waste of time because I was going to be dead within a few months. And I think that's when anxiety first started in my life. Um, now, that's not to say that everybody who saw that film 
developed mental health problems. Of course, they didn't. Uh, but it was the way I processed things. And that led ultimately to a trip to the GPs when I was about 16 in a bit of a mess. So you were age 12. And then obviously, it was only really when you get to about the age of 16 that you, you got any real kind of help. So you had four years of kind of getting, I suppose, trying to process how you were feeling, how you were dealing with, with the things that you'd experienced. Yeah, I'm pretty vague about it, to be honest, um, yeah. now. But when I, my parents were very much of the old school, stiff upper lip, get on with it uh, yes. approach to life. And as the oldest of six children, I was supposed to set an example. Uh, so obviously, I hid a lot. I hid a lot of my feelings. I did a lot of my crying in private. Um, and it was only when things really got beyond me that we ended up at the GPs. Well, so obviously you'd left school. Um, I would have assumed you'd have gone in terms of it. You'd gone towards A-levels if you were in quite an academic school. Is that right? Yeah, I got my A-levels. I got what I went for. Um, but by this time, I'd developed a love of music, classical music. And we'd had a master in the school who had set up O and A level music courses. And for the first time ever, um, we had a very strong music cohort in the school. Uh, the local borough also set up a music school, which I got heavily involved in. And by the time I was 15, 16, I was working part time there. Um, so when I actually left school at nearly 19 by that time, um, I was offered a job by the local authority working in that music school. Um, and I took it. I thought I'd rather have some money and run my car that I'd bought and everything else rather than go to university. So my okay. first job was in music. And what did you do? Well, at the age of 16, 17, not that long after that trip to the GPs, a group of us had actually set up a symphony orchestra, which sounds crazy when we say it now, but it's but it was true. Um, when I joined the local authority, it was primarily admin because I wasn't the greatest musician in the world, uh, but I was a good organiser. So wow. I I ran all their concert series, um, I ran their music library, um, and looked after instrument library and so on. So it was primarily admin, um, almost a management role at the age of 19. What would you say your biggest challenges were? People. 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 Um, I'm, I was always quite socially anxious. Um, at that age, I stood on stage at the Albert Hall and spoke to the entire hall, uh, the audience, with no fears whatsoever to introduce uh, the concert that was about to start. Wasn't bothered about all those thousands of people, but I couldn't attend the after concert party with my friends, the people I knew. I was far too socially anxious to do that. Um, it was a strange situation. So I could, I could deal with strangers, but with, my, with the people I knew, I was very, very shy. Wow. Surprising, isn't it? And, and how, um, and I can I can really kind of concur with this actually, and certainly empathise with this because I had a similar kind of upbringing. I, I could speak in front of a hundred people at the age of ten and not be bothered by it, 
but you know, on a one-on-one level, I was quite, yeah, I suppose socially anxious is, is one way. We get over it, I suppose, to some degree, or, or at least we, we cope and we create our own coping mechanisms. I guess you did yeah, the we same. Find, we find ways to handle it. Yeah. Until we learn not to do it anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. Now, what happened next in terms of your career then? What, what did you do after then? And what, in fact, what caused the transition? Um, when I was in my early 20s, um, I decided I had to settle down. What I was doing wasn't particularly well paid, was fairly um, irregular in as much as if I was running concerts, it was busy period, then it was a very quiet period and so on. Um, and I decided I'd follow my father into an office, although a different sort of office, um, and I went to join the Halifax Building Society. Well, okay. As it was purely, I went into a local employment agency and said, I'm looking for a change of job. What is the, they sent me for an interview. I got offered a job. So I went there as a trainee clerk. Okay. I worked there for just under two years, uh, still in Ilford, uh, when they said, we'd like you to run this section within the office. So I said, oh, lovely, smashing promotion. They said, oh, no, it's not a promotion because you have to work here a minimum of five years before we can promote you. But we still want you to do the job. Well, hang on, if you think I can do the job, then I can go and do it for someone else who will pay me. Um, And I got another job with a different building society, the Britannia, again in Ilford, as chief clerk. Ah. Did a couple of years with them and then joined the Liverpool Building Society in the centre of London as their London manager. And that was in 1978. Wow. I worked for them um, only again for a couple of years um, because during that period I met my um, now wife and we were both working for the same firm, the Liverpool Building Society. And back in the day, they wouldn't have couples working for them. So they informed me that one of us would have to leave. Um, they quite expected it to be my wife because she had a, a normal lower paid job. I was management, she wasn't. Um, but it was me because the, the girl who I'd say now is my wife insisted I move to Liverpool if I was going to marry her. So not only did I move to Liverpool, I left the Liverpool Building Society because they didn't want me to be married to her and work for them. So I left them and joined the Alliance Boom Society as their manager in Liverpool. And that was in 1981. That's gracious. The, um, there's some argument as to whether they could get away with that these days in terms of making such a discriminatory kind of decision. I, I'm sure there's, there's ways and means of, you know, justifying, you know, couples not working together in work, but good grief. I think in those days it was acceptable or accepted um it certainly wouldn't be now um my wife bless her has gone to work for the halifax building society over the last few years um part-time and there are plenty of married couples work in the organization now it's not unusual uh but then it was totally verboten quite an antiquated view isn't it 
Yeah, but we are talking about 1981. Indeed. So it's quite a, quite a few years ago now when you think about it. So when was your first kind of entrepreneurial kind of experience then? Because obviously you, you've had quite, looking at like your history, you've had quite a, a, a you know, normal kind of working class upbringing. Um, you, you've progressed as you've gone on from, you know, an admin role through the office into a managerial role. And obviously we know that you, you've had a background in business too. So when was your first opportunity? What led you to that? Well, I think I need to explain slightly about how I got to that point. I left the Building Society movement um, and went into the law for a period. Okay. Um, again, because I didn't want to leave the Liverpool area, or more importantly, my wife didn't. Okay. Um, and then I found myself accidentally, and it was purely accidentally, in the construction industry, in um, supply of materials and in management. And I stayed in that field until 2008. And I was general manager of a company in Manchester when the 2008 financial crash occurred. We lost that business. The banks pulled the plug on most things in the construction industry in 2008, 2009. I was then in my mid fifties without a job. First time in my life I'd been unemployed. Um, since I'd left school, I'd always gone from job to job, generally with people saying to me, why don't you come and work for us? Uh, which was very nice. So for the first time in my life, I had to produce a CV. I hiked it round to all sorts of companies um, in the construction industry, and there was just no work whatsoever. So in 2009, made the decision to set up on my own uh, with the backing and support of um, a then friend who was a manufacturer working within the industry. Uh, and I set up a small supply business supplying materials to the interior fit out market um, in the commercial property, basically, uh, basing myself in St. Helens. It was more a question of needs must than a big entrepreneurial move. Yeah. It's funny, isn't it? Is some kind of stories are like that is that they've not necessarily intended to kind of make the leap, but they've been forced into it through circumstances. But and you know, with varying degrees of success as well. But um, you were quite successful, were you? Yeah, started very lean and mean. Um, literally myself and a driver, driver warehouseman, um, and we both did everything. Yeah. Um, and it, it developed quite nicely, very slow to start with, as you might imagine. But as the construction market started to pick up again after the real 2008-9 slump, um, then we picked up with it. It was hard work, um, but it was good fun as well, because we could see, you know, I can still drive through buildings in the northwest of England and say, I supplied that one. <laughs> yeah. I know I know what's in there. Uh, and well, so on. Well, what were your biggest challenges, I'd say, in starting up? Because I know that's something maybe our listeners would want to kind of understand a bit more about. The biggest challenges were, um, firstly, funding. Yeah. I had a certain amount of money I could put in. Um, but, of course, growing businesses always need money. Yeah. And at that time, there was no way of getting money out of the banks for anything that had the word construction vaguely associated with it. Um, so it was a big challenge which was one reason why I was quite happy to um, bring on board 
this chap that I knew um, in Birmingham. He had a, a company that manufactured materials for the industry. And he said, well, look, I'll act as your support, your backup. Um, I will work with you to supply some of my materials at preferential rates. And I'll be there just for any backup you need as and when you need it, because obviously you can't be available 365 days of the year. Um, so that was challenge number one. Challenge number two was finding customers because I was still very socially anxious. I was quite happy for somebody to come in, sit in front of me and ask me to help them. That's not a mm. problem. My problem was going out and finding those people. Yeah. Um, it, because I, I wouldn't do things like networking. Um, I thought networking was probably one of the scarier things in life. Um, and what I haven't explained is that after that first trip to the GPs at the age of 16, 17, I'd been on and was still on antidepressants uh, on a very, very regular basis. So 2008-9, I was still on antidepressants. Wow. I had a, a propensity towards anxiety, stress and depression. Um, and I just thought that was something that was inbuilt in me and there was nothing I could do about it. It was just something the drugs had to keep under control. Um, I also have to admit that I enjoyed my alcohol too much. So as the business in, it was in St. Helens, this business, and as it developed, um, even when it wasn't going badly, I was very stressed because I was very sure it was going to go badly next week, even if it hadn't this week. Absolutely. Um, and a combination of antidepressants and um, alcohol kept that at bay um, as best it could. But I was on a hiding to nothing. It wasn't no, going to, my health wasn't going to last under those circumstances. No. In 2000 and do my sums here, 13, late 2013, uh, my wife said to me, you've been running yourself into the ground now ever since you set this up. We've not had a proper holiday. We are going to go away on holiday. And I, asked, I said, well, where do you want to go? Expecting her, this was September, I was expecting her to say, let's chase the sun. And she said, let's go on the Norfolk Broads. Okay. Which was actually a throwback to the first holiday we'd had together when we were courting. So, um, How romantic. We, well, there you are, nothing if not romantic. We, off we went to the Norfolk Broads for a fortnight and I contacted my um, sleeping partner, if you want to call him that, sure. uh, in Birmingham and said, I will be away this fortnight. Could you just keep a watching brief over what's going on in St. Helens? I've left everything teed up. Everything is organised to come in, to go out. Um, there's plenty of money in the bank because we were in an expansion phase. We were looking to find a second depot. Um, so we were quite cash rich. Um, and I said, you know, the people up here now know exactly what to do. They shouldn't yeah. bother you at all. But if you can just be there for them, if, you, if they need you. And, you know, it's, it's that kind of, I suppose it's that kind of... Um 
position that we all want to be in, I suppose, as entrepreneurs. We want to be in a situation whereby the business runs without us. We can step away from it, we can take a holiday, and it just runs, and it runs profitably. So you're in an ideal situation there, weren't you? I thought so. Yeah. I did think so. Um, and as I say, it was the first time I'd left it, so I was somewhat nervous about doing Imagine. that. Yeah. Um, and I was even in the office on the morning when we were due to be driving over to Norfolk. Um, what you were? <laughs> I was in at six o'clock that morning for about four or five hours before finally coming, picking my wife up and off we went. Um, and at that point, I would almost have done anything to get out of the holiday uh, because I was very nervous about leaving it. Uh, of course. But, but I equally, t- equally told myself there was no reason to be nervous. Yes. So off we went and had our holiday. Um, and I came back feeling much more relaxed. We'd had a fortnight of really very, very quiet activity. And um, so the Monday morning came and off I went to the office, expecting one or two hiccups were bound to be, weren't there? Um, I think I'd have been quite upset if there hadn't been because I wanted to be missed a bit. Um, <laughs> yeah, of course, but, there is that. <laughs> yeah. But when I got there, I let myself in. Oh, the warehouse was significantly emptier than it should have been. There was no sign of the vehicles, there was no sign of any staff. What was going on? So I thought, right, well, first thing is maybe, maybe there have been some early deliveries. So that's where the vehicles and the staff are. I'll start contacting suppliers to get some stuff in because it's obvious we're in desperate need of certain products. So I started making some phone calls because I couldn't work out how this had occurred because I'd left orders teed up to come in. And I'd been away over a month end. And uh, the message I got from people was, well, you pay your bill, we'll send the stuff. Well, that took me a bit by surprise because I'd left everything teed up for the bills to be paid. I've given payment instructions. This shouldn't have been a problem. So I tried to log on to our online banking. Couldn't get in. Well, that's very strange. So I phoned the bank. Only to find out the account was closed. And this was an account that bearing in mind what should have come in and clearly hadn't gone out to pay bills, should have had a very big sum of money in it. And nothing there. Account closed. When we talk about sum of money, we're not talking, we're talking substantial, obviously, but... We're talking six-figure sum should have been in the bank. Wow. Um, Bear in mind, as I say, what should have come in. One one client I know that month was due to pay me 136,000 and would normally have been spot on time, so that should have been there, based on the fact that nothing had gone out, and that was one client alone. So there was that and the stock that had gone as well. And the stock and everything else. So something was clearly awry. Um, Obviously, by this time, I'm very panicky. Um, And it took me a little while to piece together what had happened. But it transpired that my so-called sleeping partner had, in fact, set up two days after I told him that I was going on holiday, had set up a company with a very, very similar name to mine and had instructed everybody to pay into that just simply saying that the bank account had changed 
had cancelled everything with our bank and moved this account to another bank and had cleared it out. Wow. So all the money that had come in had disappeared. All the money that had been there and due to go out hadn't been paid. Stock had disappeared. They'd been supplied to people and I couldn't even find out who, where it had gone. And it also transpired that the vehicles I was referring to had been sold. Um, the staff had been told that I'd gone on holiday rather than face them to tell them that they were redundant. Um, yeah, my reaction was a little bit stronger than that, Gary. But uh, I was left literally with nothing. The position, it took me a while to fathom out the position, obviously. But in total, we were talking about a seven-figure sum. Wow. Um, nobody has ever been able to find the other gentleman. Um, we think he fled abroad. And obviously, although I, it was a limited company, I'd had to sign quite a lot of director's guarantees and things. Sure. Um, because of the expansion phase we were in. Um, and people were chasing me. That's right. I spent... I looked up my position and I realised very quickly that the only asset I had was the equity in our marital home um, because I'd sunk all my savings into the business and that had gone. Sure. Um, the, my original plan had been to sell the business when I hit 65 and that would be my retirement fund. Well, that had gone because there was no business. So I spent a few weeks trying to see what I could save with the aim basically to try and save the marital home. But that all became too much. Um, the combination of the antidepressants and the booze weren't keeping me under control at all. I was a quivering wreck. Imagine. I mean, jumping a little bit back, I mean, that, that day, that fateful day that you walked through into your office and you discovered that something was desperately wrong. And how did, you know, what would the conversation be like between you and, say, your wife at that you know at this particular time because that must have been horrendous it's it's typical of i mean we've been married now coming up to 40 years um and it is typical of my wife how it all played out because i i couldn't stay in the office i got to about lunchtime yeah. and i just got in the car locked it up and I thought, i've got to get out i've just got to get out of here and i came home and i walked through the door uh, with a couple of bottles of wine in my hand, because that was my tipple of choice. Um, I'd stopped at the off-licence on the way home. And obviously I was, in, I was in a mess. I was crying. I was shaking. My wife looked at me and said, what, you know, what's the matter? What, whatever's up? And I told her, and I said, you know, everything's gone. Everything has gone. And I, I sort of told her very briefly what had happened. Um, and she just looked at me and she said two things. She said, I never did like him, which I knew to be true because yeah. she told me that before. And the second was, well, we'll get through it. Wow. And I remember thinking I would, I would never lay a finger on her, don't get me wrong, but I remember thinking I could almost have shaken her and said, you don't understand how bad this is. Um, but I didn't. Um, but I did say to her, we are going to lose the house. 
and she looked at me and she said it's only bricks and mortar we're not going to be homeless if we have to get a tent we get a tent and that that has always been the measure of leslie my wife she's always been the the strong one the reasonable one the um positive one i i was always the catastrophic negative panicky one um and it it was i looked at her and i honestly thought there was something strange about her because, because she wasn't panicking i thought well do, do you really not understand everything has gone and when she looked at me and said well we'll just have to rebuild won't we and i thought well at this time of my life rebuild you know i'm 60 i can't there's no time to rebuild um but she stood she stood her ground and she still does um nothing phases her amazing it was it was amazing a few a few weeks went by as i said and i was trying to save anything i could and reached the conclusion that i couldn't mm. really save anything and then on the first friday of march in 2014 so it's fraction over six years ago instead of turning left out of the road i live in went off as if i was going to st helens as normal instead of turning left i turned right i don't remember much for the next couple of hours but i do then remember being taken off a bridge in north wales by two policemen because i'd reached the conclusion in my fevered brow that the best thing i could do would be to commit suicide because that way i thought well the creditors won't come chasing my wife if i'm not around and at least she'll have the house and i think she'll have the house my life insurance i've subsequently checked she would have done um because i honestly just thought there was nothing left for me and i've gone out to this bridge that i'd seen only a few days previously because i'd been to a meeting with some creditors near it and i'd gone to this bridge and it was just pure chance that these policemen came to the bridge and saw me and took me off it Goodness. and that would say was just over six years ago i was taken to rex and myla hospital and they wanted to admit me um but i was released into the care of my family my son had brought my wife down at this point uh, my son's a police officer and he's a lot bigger than me and he'd made it quite clear to the hospital <laughs> staff that he would control me um, and um, I was taken to see the GP that day, my, my current GP that day. Of course. Um, he said, well, I can't really give you anything else because you're on maximum dose antidepressants anyway. Yeah. Um, I can get you admitted to the local hospital, psych ward straight away, and that would be my preference. But neither myself, my wife or my son wanted that to happen. So... Again, I was sort of released to their custody, as it were. Um, and a matter of a few days later, I was sent to see a psychiatrist um, through the NHS. Wow, okay. Um, that psychiatrist met with me twice. I have no memory of either meeting. 
but my wife assures me that happened and I know they must have done because of the procedure uh, but I had no idea what I said no idea whatsoever but my wife said basically she spent a lot of the time um, translating from blub to English for the psychiatrist um, I was then told you don't need a psychiatrist you need a psychologist because this is all about how you think and how your mind works yeah. and I was referred to a young psychologist um, at St Cath's Hospital in Birkenhead okay again I don't is remember the Stein Centre now the Stein Centre yes that's yeah. part of St Cath's yeah again I don't remember too much about the first session um, but on either the second or third session I had with her, they were weekly sessions. On either the second or third session I had with her, she said to me, I've got bad news for you. And it, that was like hitting me with a hammer because I thought I can't take any more bad news. And she said, I said, what, what? And she said, there's nothing wrong with you. And I, I looked at her, I said, well, of course there is. I've been on antidepressants for donkey's years. I drink like a fish. I can't get this anxiety, depression, whatever the heck it is, under control. There's something wrong with me. Lots of doctors have given me prescriptions. Obviously, there must be. And she said, no, there's nothing wrong with you at all. You haven't got some sort of defect in your brain or your mind. I said, it's simply a question of how you think, how you process things in your life. And she explained to me that the difference between my wife and I in our styles that I talked about before was that my wife processes things calmly and logically and I was processing things catastrophically and negatively. And that was just my habit. That was my habitual way of thinking. And she said, no, I'm going to teach you to do this differently. And I remember explaining to her in words of one syllable that you can't teach in old dog new tricks um, and she said you watch three months went by weekly sessions and I felt one heck of a lot better hadn't solved all the problems I still got creditors coming out of my ears I'd still got things to try and resolve but I felt a heck of a lot more able to cope and she said right unfortunately I can't see you anymore because this is the limit to how long I can be with you. Uh, but I don't think you need me anymore. She said, in fact, I'll make two predictions for you. So I, was, I asked her what they were. She said, one is that you won't see me again because you won't need me. And the second is that you are going to work in some way in the mental health field. And again, I, I said to her, no, you know, I'm too old. I can't relearn. I know nothing about mental health. I've got no experience. And she said, you've got 40 odd years of experience. You've lived it. And you've learned a heck of a lot in the last three months. Go on, find something to do. There's plenty out there, maybe volunteering, maybe whatever. Go and find something to do. You will work in the mental health field. So that played on my mind for a while. I had to find some work. I, then, I went back into the office in St Helens, which was still there, um, to make a last-ditch attempt to basically close it down in an organised manner. Um, the landlord had kept everything mothballed for me, which was very good of him. Um, and I walked in, 
and the first person to come through the door was a high court bailiff. Uh. And my heart was in my mouth. And he walked in, asked for me by name, obviously. He was from the local council, or on behalf of the local council, looking for unpaid business rates, uh, nearly £40,000, which obviously, if it had been nearly £40, would have been a problem. Um, I asked him in, I explained the situation to him. And after about two or three minutes, he put his hand up and he said, I'll stop you there, Ian. And again, I thought, he's just going to say, give me the money. He then spent 20 minutes explaining to me how I would feel a lot better in a few months time and how he'd been through what he described as a breakdown two years previously. And we discussed the treatment we both had, how we now felt and how things were ongoing. Stood up, shook me by the hand, wished me luck, and I never heard a word about those business rates again. <laughs> that is a fantastic, I mean, good grief. Who would have thought a high court bailiff would be a guy to kind of encourage you along? He probably did as much for me as that psychologist did, because it gave me some belief in the fact that people could recover and the fact that there are decent people out there who understand. That is amazing. Um, I'll never forget that man. I've never seen him since. And I don't know his name. Uh, I know the firm he worked for, but I know they're a big firm. They've got lots of bailiffs, but I'll never forget him. Wow. Um, I then subsequently found out about the Thrive programme. I've been looking around for something to train in. I've been doing some voluntary work with a couple of mental health charities, but I wanted training. And I'd looked at various different things. And in fact, I had trained in a couple of things, but nothing really struck me as the ultimate thing I wanted. And I found one day doing some research online, I found the Thrive Programme. And I looked at their training information online and it appeared to be very in-depth. And I think perhaps running right back to my grammar school education, I like in-depth training. I want to know what I'm doing. I don't want half a story. So I contacted Rob Kelly, in Cambridge, who's the guy who got the whole program together and runs it. And I asked him if I could train as a Thrive Program consultant. And he almost instantly told me no. Um, and I said, why? And he said, because I will not consider anybody for training until they've been through the Thrive Program themselves as a client so that they've got both sides of the coin. So I asked how I could do that. And uh, he asked me where I lived. I explained the Wirral. He hadn't got a clue where that was because poor old Robbie gets a nosebleed north of about Watford. Um, and it transpired when he came back, he told me that my local Thrive consultant lived in the same street as me. In fact, she lived next door but one to me, uh, which was quite amazing because she was the only consultant on Merseyside fancy her living in the same road um, so I went and saw her she took me through the program took six weeks and if the Steen Centre had got me off the floor onto my knees the Thrive program got me off my knees standing upright it was just a, a whole division beyond what I'd ever experienced before and 
I then contacted Rob and said, right, I've done that. He said, yes, I know I've had the report. So I said, will you train me? The answer was yes. So just to run back a little bit, what did you learn then? What, what, what was it about the Thrive programme that, that kind of brought you from your knees to standing up straight? It taught me 100% how I could and should take control of my thinking, my beliefs and my emotions. That I, none of these reactions that I've had in the past were inevitable. There were things that I created in my own head and many of them were pure habit. I'd always reacted that way to that circumstance. So I always would until I learned differently. Um, it explained to me what was going on in my own mind and how I could do it better. And there's a statement and it's still in the course right near the beginning of the course. 95% of what you need to do in order to change your life is to understand your psychological makeup and what makes you tick. And that's still in the book. Um, and I read that and I thought, do you really, like, do it, do you really mean it's all down to me? 95% of what I need to do is down to me. Um, and I think that, that one statement was the biggest thing that got me. And I got this workbook to work through and everything just made sense it all just made sense to me it was as if it had been written for me and my experience um so it wasn't like a textbook it was like a personal book written for me so i just found over that period i could take control i could be the controlled person i could be the person who thought logically and calmly I could think the same way as my wife, which I never thought I'd be able to. And that, it was just like a breath of fresh air. There was no mumbo jumbo. There was no psychoanalysis. There was no, let's look back in your history and find out why you have this feeling or what's caused this issue. Um, it was, okay, this is where you are now. Let's see where you want to go and how we can get you there. And I've learned that the Thrive Programme is very much like a sat-nav. If you have a sat-nav, it never asks you how to, you got to where you are today. It just tells you how to get to where you want to go. Uh, that, that, for me, was incredible. Um, the, when I looked at the training for consultants, what appealed to me was that it wasn't training to deliver the Thrive Programme. Yes, that was part of it, but a very significant part, more than half of the training program I went through was looking at psychology from the early days, from Freud, going through all the different theories, the different experiments, the different um, programs, the different treatments, the different therapies, so that I had a really good understanding of the background of everything, as opposed to just, well, here's Thrive, get on with it, which wouldn't have appealed to me. No. So I spent 15 months training as a consultant. And then four years ago, coming up towards four years ago, um, I got my wings, or put another way, a certificate. Um, and I was a qualified Thrive Program consultant. So, wow. So what's a typical day in your life now like? What, you know, Obviously, at this, this moment in time, it's slightly different given 
we're in the midst of COVID, etc. But you know, let's say rewind to this time last year. You know, what would a, a typical day be like with you and, and say your clients? One of one of the nice things, Gary, is that in some ways there isn't a typical day um, because there isn't a typical client. I've worked with clients as young as eight years old, although obviously in the legal sense the parent was the client. Of but I've worked with eight-year-olds and I've worked with 82-year-olds, male and female, all sorts of different issues, all sorts of different problems. Um, so there's no such thing as a typical client. I don't work from a consulting room. I go to people. Um, so 80% of my clients, I travel to see wherever they may be. Um, that's sometimes in their own home. Um, sometimes been a, a local library. It can be an office rented by the hour, um, cafes, all sorts of places, because all we do is talk and work through the program. 20% um, have been via Skype. Um, and that actually wasn't my original intention, but as with life, things take over. And when I was approached very early on uh, by a lady in Michigan, North America um, for help. Obviously, Skype was the only option because strangely, she wouldn't pay my mileage. Uh, <laughs> so a, a typical day just doesn't exist. Just doesn't exist. I spend an hour and a half or so at a time with a client for a session. I say or so because I don't run a stopwatch. Um, some days I may see two clients. Some days I can see four. It just varies. It varies on when they can do. Sometimes I'm working at the weekends and I'm free on a Tuesday and Wednesday. Sometimes I'm working in the evenings and free in the mornings. Um, there's a lot of um, studying still because I have to keep up to date with all the latest developments because psychology is a very, very current field. There's masses of research going on. Of course. And the Thrive Organization have a um, facility at head office that look at all that and make sure we're kept abreast of anything we need to know. Um, but obviously it's up to me then to keep abreast of what they're telling me. Um, I also have to keep extensive records um, because obviously any client at any time may need me or someone may have a query about their treatment. So far in the four years, no client has come back to me yet saying they need more help <coughs> of course that could happen circumstances can change um so i'm going through a very strange period at the moment like we all are because i'm spending most of my time in front of a laptop um or on the phone i'm trying to do what i can to to keep clients um happy and healthy at this time and I'm also trying to help people who I've not had previous contact with, but who are struggling with the lockdown situation. Yeah, it, I think it's created a whole new set of challenges, hasn't it? I know, um, you know, like chat just before the this interview, you know, I, I'd said that, uh, you know, I found this week in particular to be you know, probably the toughest and we're only like four weeks in. But uh, but nonetheless, I suppose for for children as well and for for parents of children, it's a whole new routine. It's a whole kind of different situation to be in. And 
and I would imagine that once we're out of the lockdown, they'll be pounding your doors to kind of maybe kind of try and get abreast of it and try to, to understand it a little bit more and, and what they need to do. I think these there's classic situation at the moment for people which will always breed anxiety is uncertainty yes uh, people are people are very much uncertain about their futures what's going on have they got a job when will they get back to it etc relationships I, I know a number of people who've not seen their partners for weeks um one young lady i i know who i did some work with is very upset because um, she'd not long started seeing a guy and now yeah. they can't see each other. Um, children, believe it or not, there are teenagers who are missing school. They probably wouldn't admit it, but they, they certainly are. Mm. Um, so there's, there's people struggling with the current situation. There are other people, perhaps people like I used to be, um, suffering with social anxiety, who are actually probably feeling a little bit safer at the moment. Yes. And we start to get more anxious as we come out of this period. Um, because they'll then have to go back into the world and perhaps go back to work or whatever, where they may not have been uncomfortable, may not have been comfortable before. Um, so I think there's a whole range of problems happening and waiting to happen. Yeah. So I, I think we're going to have to be ready for quite a lot of people needing help in the coming weeks and months. What would you say is the best part of your job then? What, what do you kind of get the, the biggest kind of sense of fulfillment out, fulfillment out of? That is easy to answer. It is watching people improve. It is being on the journey with them and seeing where they get to. Um, recently, I had a gentleman in his 60s said to me, my mind is so calm, this is wonderful. And I thought, it may be wonderful for you. It's wonderful for me as well to see it. Um, yeah, I completely agree. Not long, only a few months ago, I was working with an 11-year-old lass. Um, she, she was in her first year at senior school and she'd hardly attended due to anxiety. Um, she was getting herself in a, a really bad way. And we worked together for eight weeks. And again, she was one I visited saw her with her parents in her own home and in the last two weeks she got 100% attendance in school and she introduced herself to one of the teachers who she'd never actually met although should have been teaching her for geography for the whole of the previous term now imagine how that makes me feel when I see people do that that's amazing see people achieve that it's a wonderful feeling of achievement and everybody I've worked with there's been very, very clear improvement, very, very obvious improvement. Some people have totally 100% nailed the issue um, and I can't see them ever having a problem again. Other people have very, very significantly improved it and that's, that's what matters. So I get just as much of a buzz as they do. That's a pheno- this is a phenomenal story. Uh, the final question I, I've got to ask, however, is, in fact, no, there's two. There's two questions. Um, first one is, what would you say are the four things you've kind of learned through your whole, whole career that you could, say, pass on to, to somebody else that, that's maybe started out? A couple of things that I've really, really taken on board. One is that nothing's permanent. Um, I've changed. I've not changed jobs 
four times. I've changed careers. Um, the days of staying in the same job and the same career are well gone. Um, yeah. So I, I've had one, two, three, four, I've had five careers, if you think of it that way, in very different fields. Um, so change is, is certain. Get used to it. Be ready for it. Um, so that's number one. And the other one is never give up. I've, I've gone very, very close to giving up on a number of occasions. And certainly on that bridge, I'd given up. I had totally given up six years ago. That was it. That was the end. Um, I had no idea how fantastic my life could become in just a couple of years after that. Don't get me wrong. We, you know, all the money's gone. Yeah. Um, we haven't got the standard of living I expected to have at this stage. We haven't got the retirement fund. I've worked out I can afford to retire when I'm 307. So, uh, <laughs> so that's okay, because the government probably will want us to do that anyway by then. Um, but it doesn't matter. My life is the best I think I ever remember it being consistently. Um, so whatever's going on, there's always tomorrow. And there's always something around the corner. I would Reminds never have guessed this before. Reminds me of um, Winston Churchill's kind of speech, doesn't it? The, uh, the never give in. Yeah, so I'm not sure how many times he said the word never. It was about seven. No, uh, it, 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 was, it, was, it was quite considerable, but I think he was going yeah. for emphasis there. So what's yeah. number three then? Number, number three is that if you can find the thing that makes you tick, which is what's referred to in that phrase from the Thrive Course, yeah. then you've, you've cracked it. And I found, much to my great surprise, that the thing that made me tick was people. The very thing that I'd spent years avoiding is people. So the strange thing now is my wife was always a social animal. I'm now more of a social animal than she is. And she finds that quite strange. Yeah. It in used a good to be way. Case, oh, in a good way. It used to be the case that if we went anywhere, she'd spend her entire time introducing her husband to so and so and so and so and so and so. Now I spend my time introducing my wife to so and so, so and so and so and so. Fantastic. It's a total change, total reversal of roles. To find the thing that makes you tick and you never look back. No. Oh. Just took me a long time to find it. And last but not least. I think that's about it. So we've got three. That's, that's good. And I think that was really I'll give you three. <laughs> yeah. Nothing's permanent. Never give up. And if you find what makes you tick, then you've cracked it. Yeah. I, I honestly believe that those three things um, are my guiding principle now. Fantastic. No, that's brilliant. Um, my final question. And here's the final question. It's a little bit of fun, really. But if you were to have a say at a dinner party, because now you, you are kind of more sociable, um, who would you invite, living or dead? Anyone? Well, that's a difficult one. Um, I would invite, well, there'd be two people I can particularly think of. Two people who've been massively influential in my life, and neither of them will mean a great deal to your listeners I don't expect um, one would be Rob Kelly founder of the Thrive program okay because without Thrive I wouldn't be where I am now 
and the other goes right the way back to school, a fellow called Bramwell Tovey. Um, Bram is the um, musical director of the BBC Concert Orchestra now. Wow. Uh, he lives, but he lives in Vancouver, where he's musical director um, of the Vancouver Symphony Orchestra. Um, so he's, but he was my best friend at school. And we lost contact for many, many years, um, simply because our paths just separated. Uh, but now with social media and um, the fact that he travels internationally, uh, we're now back in contact. And I would love to spend an evening in his company. Um, just to, a lot of catching up and so on. So those two people for me, um, yes, of course, there are film stars and everyone else you'd love to meet. But those two people have had a massive impact on my life over the years. Phenomenal. Ian, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you very Thank you. much indeed for taking the time you know, to, to tell the story and, and, to, and to kind of explain really the way you've come from. It's, it's, been, it's been a roller coaster, but, uh, but thoroughly enjoyed it. I think our listeners can get a lot from this, particularly the three main things that you've learned through it all. Well, thank you for the opportunity, Gary. I've enjoyed speaking to you. Likewise, it's been an absolute pleasure. Well, that was a fantastic interview. Um, my thanks again goes out to uh, Ian for, for taking the time out to tell his story. I know parts of it were breathtaking from my point of view, and, and, and hopefully you too have got something from, from his story and, and certainly from the lessons learned. So that's all we've got time for for today. Thank you for taking the time to, to listen to, uh, to our episode two. Uh, we will be back next week uh, with yet another interview, and uh, we'll look forward to, to speaking to you then. Don't forget to subscribe and don't forget to leave us a review if you felt that you've got had some benefit from this. Bye for now. <laughs>